1: My question for you today is on this lovely Earth Day, Happy Earth Day. As Happy you report, Earth Day. Yes. <laughs> yes. yes. Not as you're listening to this, it's a little late, but as <laughs> we it is Earth Day. <laughs> when you were growing up, was the environment and kind
2: of environmentalism important to you? So, it's really sad to say, we definitely had Earth Day in my mm-hmm. schools, and we talked mm-hmm. about it. We planted trees. We They gave out trees. They gave out plants, all of these things. I was really excited about that. I actually came home and planted them. Mm-hmm. But as I've said on this show many times, and to your face, I kill plants. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I even said on the Daily Zeitgeist, I think they're overrated because I'm so bitter about the fact that I'm not good with plants.
1: Oh, so it's like a reflection back onto you. It
2: really is. It really is. <laughs> but I... I've never been big into any of that stuff. I think part of that is because growing up in a very small town, you Mm -hmm. don't really have the opportunities to practice these things. So recycling wasn't available. Our trash, Mm -hmm. we didn't have people come pick up trash. Not that that's any better. Right. But it was bad enough that we burned trash in the back every week. We had a burned trash pile. And I'm, mm-hmm. I think back on now, I'm like, man, this is really bad. Mm-hmm. This is really bad. <laughs> like trying to realize what we were doing. But you mm-hmm. had to do what you had to do, especially again, in our area. And not only am I in a small town, so a rural area. I'm mm-hmm. outside of the town. Like I literally say the words, I'm going into town because that was something... that we did. And -hmm. then when I came into... uh, When I went to college and people were like, you're going to town. You're in town. Like, they didn't understand (laughs) what I was saying. They were making fun of me. But that's how far away and far removed I was growing up. So, of course, recycling was not in my purview at all. Everything was about convenience. And, you know, I think you and I have talked about the fact we've had a couple of ads for like paper plates and somebody was really upset. And I get that. But Mm -hmm. at the same time, like you didn't grow up in a small town environment for kids with additional other kids where my mother was trying not to lose her mind trying to take care of us cooking us meals and making affordability so you had access to whatever was the most convenient so you could survive essentially her her for her own like mental health she had to get this done Mm -hmm. and so as much as i hate some of these things and of course now that i live in atlanta live by myself i'm and and Growing up and understanding the cost to the environment and why you know we need to be aware of that, it wasn't so much that it was a priority to us. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: So, and even now, I still have to go back and forth and be like, "Okay, I feel like it's made so difficult because there are things that you think that you can recycle that you you don't have access to recycle." In Atlanta, you're the one who told us, "You know, you can't recycle glass," right? And I'm like, "What?" (laughs) Oh, no. So that means the entire time that I've been sending out things to be recycled, I just dumped off all of our stuff because I put glass in there, Mm -hmm. thinking it could be recycled. Yeah. I mean,
1: that conversation, the recycling conversation, I am frequently a killjoy in that one because (laughs) I've done that to other friends. And that's actually one of my favorite drunken stories I have is I was telling a friend of mine and we were at a party uh, at a cabin and I was saying you know, you can't recycle any of this because you didn't really wash it. It's not mm-hmm. clean. Right. And they're just going to throw it out. And the next morning, I opened the dishwasher and there's all these like plastic <laughs> like containers <laughs> in there because she put them in there to you wash. It. I was like, this is not... No, you this was it. a bad
2: idea. <laughs> <laughs> you did it. Yeah, but that's also the other part to that is... And and ignorance is not an excuse. But we mm-hmm. really don't understand the levels of what we're doing. But of course, we've learned, hey, turn off the water. Don't waste mm-hmm. water. Do this. Take a shorter shower. You know, all of those things. Yeah. We've learned about the awfulness of plastic. We've learned about the little rings uh, off of the yeah. Cokes and, mm-hmm. and soda that we've now like, oh, these kill fish. Okay, my bad. Yeah. Stuff like that. You are later learn that this is not a good thing. The single serving stuff, not the best way to go. Mm-hmm. You gave us a soda stream. I love mm-hmm. it, but we were because we were throwing out so many aluminum cans. And yeah. of course, those are a little more recyclable, accessible to recycling, but like realizing, oh, this probably is a better option than mm-hmm. doing this. Uh, stuff like that. It's definitely something that we need to be conscientious of. But again, mm-hmm. a lot of that is also privilege. Yeah. Even though it shouldn't be, all of these mm-hmm. things that should be in practice have a lot of privilege tied to it. Oh, absolutely. So my
1: dad was huge, like huge into the environment, very big environmentalist. That It's one of the things like anytime I see something about like conserving this or conserving that, I think of him because that was like his, one of his things. And that's why we lived in Alaska for a while because he like wanted to be in the wilderness. And that's actually why we ended up moving to Dahlonega because it was a compromise between him and my mom about she wanted to be closer to her family he wanted somewhere that still felt like he was in nature. Mm-hmm. And then where you could see mountains. And so growing up, I had a very, um, <laughs> like those rules of you can't leave the water on for this long, you can't uh, leave the refrigerator open, all these things that have sort of translated into my adult life that I do annoy my friends about. And it it was a huge part of, Growing up for me and something very important. And actually, I recently, um, I have this list of uh, terrifying children's movies that I occasionally watch over again. Most of those were introduced by my dad, who also loved movies. And I tell you, most of them are about the environment. Most right. of them are about environmental damage humans are causing to animals. <laughs> so wait, is one of them Fern Gully? Burn Gully was on there, but I rewatched it. It is not scary. It did scare me (laughs) as a child, but now I'm like, well, Tim Curry is singing and this is the best, but I'm not (laughs) afraid. It's that's so fair. 90s. I don't know if you've seen it recently. It's, it is. No. Oh no.
2: I don't watch animated stuff much anyways, but mm-hmm. yeah, that's that was a long long time ago for me. So, oh, yeah, it's great. I find it interesting cuz you and I come from a very different perspective of that, especially when it comes to environment, and I'm like, "Man, you and I may make the perfect person." <laughs> <laughs> I've
1: often said if we could transform, <laughs> we would balance each other out. It's true. It's true. <laughs> Yeah, but it's it was important. I studied in college sustainability and um, I went one of my first international trips, whereas I was learning about the environment um in Australia, and that was a very complicated thing, but it, it has been and is something that is very important to me, and I think increasingly as more and more intention and uh concern around climate change comes to the world. <laughs> um, We are thinking about it. And yes, there are very much issues of accessibility and privilege there. But all that being said, we did want to talk about women in the environment because there's a lot of things we could talk about there. And a lot of things are coming out right now because President Biden is the climate change summit that he is leading is underway right now as we record. So right before we came in, I was seeing notices of like they're talking about this and they're talking about this. So. There's that. And then um, some of the stuff we're going to discuss in this episode, we talked about in our episode, It Ain't Easy Being Green, where we talked about how toxic masculinity ruins everything. Pretty everything. Much. <laughs> Even caring about the environment. Or you can also check out the female first we did on Wangari Muta Matai, um, who was a really big person and inspiring person when it comes to environmentalism.
2: Right. Definitely a good episode. So let's get into the what of our conversation. Women have a long history of being leaders when it comes to environmentalism, a history that carries over to this day, from Rachel Carson to Wangari Maathai to Marina Silva to Peggy Shepard to AOC to Greta Thunberg and so many more. And yes, we've seen a lot of young activists coming out and love, love that. And this is a space where we see all kinds of intersections, class, race, gender. And since women and even more so women of color are impacted by environmental issues. Think of things like The water in Flint, Michigan. Uh, Yes, we do have young Miss Flint, who is still very active. And actually, if you go look at her Twitter right now, she is trying to raise money to get more uh, filters, water filters, because that's still a problem. And that's still a thing, which is absurd, Mm -hmm. which disproportionately impacted families of color. As in fact, they got like a little bit of a window of all the protests and how bad it was going and then disappeared. And it's still a problem there. Or the fact that women around the world are largely responsible for the collection of water, which cuts into time and education, and it's also frequently unsafe. And we've definitely had discussions about the war and the battles that happen over claiming over water. Yeah. I mean, as in fact is even a, an issue that is a an back and forth argument between Florida and Georgia. Like We've seen yep. that happen. Of course, not to the level that is... Really, really dangerous out into the other areas of the world. Companies and society at large don't care about impoverished areas, um, usually populated by women, children, and yes, particularly women and children of color. And the, the pandemic has not helped at all in this issue either. And mm-hmm. that leads to an unhealthy and often unsafe environments that have a greater impact on women. At the same time, they're often excluded. And we've talked about this before from high-level policy discussions and decisions.
1: Yeah. So according to the UN, women hold only 12% of top positions in environment-related sectors. On top of that, women account for only about 14% of land ownership worldwide. And some estimates put it way lower, like single-digit lower And that excludes them from decisions around land management. In some areas, working the land or selling timber are one of the few ways women can make a living. Indigenous women often have more knowledge about the uses of plants and how best to make them stretch and what to turn to during times of scarcity. So, sort of this knowledge of the land, but they are not being allowed to own it or make decisions around it often. And. Though we have made a lot of strides, women still shoulder more responsibility when it comes to domesticity, the home, and child care. The environment you're in touches all of that. Also, caring about something in general has been feminized, yeah. something we've also talked about a lot. The planet itself is called Mother Earth, and we have painted caring for it as... Women's work. In fact, I did not know this, but President Theodore Roosevelt, famous American conservationist, was ridiculed for being feminine over his environmentalist policies. It was like cartoons of him like wearing an apron. So absurd. (laughs) Very, very much so. Anecdotally, I will say I do have a lot of younger male friends that care about the environment a lot. I don't I can't necessarily speak to the actions behind the words. But they seem to care about a lot my younger brother. Wow. And I feel in older generations, though, again, in my experience, uh, most of the men who cared about it, they cared about it in the sense of hunting, of being able to hunt, or, quote, like being left alone on their land, you know? Very much not my dad, though. He, He cared, he legit cared about the environment. But I just have a lot of like other references of men sort of being like, I
2: just want to be able to hunt and be left alone on my right. <laughs> They want to sustain their own land, but not yeah. necessarily caring about the environment. Exactly.
1: Younger folks are more likely to be environmentally conscious and to rate climate change as a priority issue. Yes.
2: And organizations have started officially recognizing the importance of women in, when it comes to the environment. Yay. Uh, may help also that we actually have a secretary... Deb Holland, who is an Indigenous woman, coming and yeah. talking about some of these issues and bringing it to the front. Yay. Mm-hmm. And at the 1995 Fourth World Conference on Women, women and the environment was pinpointed as one of the 12 key areas in the Beijing Declaration and Platform for. Action. This platform made three recommendations towards the end, quote, involving women actively in an environmental decision making at all levels, integrating their concerns and perspectives in policies and programs, and establishing ways to access the impact of development and environmental policies on women. In the 2018
1: 14th meeting of the Conference of the Parties to the CBD, it was agreed that gender responsiveness should be involved in the development of biodiversity frameworks. To achieve this, UN Women and UNEP WCMC identified three main objectives. Equal opportunities for leadership, decision-making, and effective engagement at all levels. Equal access, ownership, and control over biological resources. And equal access to benefits from biodiversity, conservation, and sustainable use And from the utilization of genetic resources. If you're interested in any of this, because I know it can sound pretty dense, um, you can find the statements that the UN has released about it. And it is interesting how they unpack some things that you might not expect to show up in a paper about environmentalism, like reproductive rights.
2: Right. So I recommend it. And we've talked a lot about the fact that environmental issues is a feminist issue. So, but that's that's a whole different conversation. But yeah. Mm -hmm. So... Let's discuss consumerism for a second. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Here we go. There are, of course, specific consumer habits and choices that are specific to women. We've talked about these a lot. We've spoken about how women are more likely to recycle and use reusable bags and the added workload of that. But on the other side of that, there are considerations to make around products like cosmetics or menstrual items when it comes to environmental impact. And on top of that, in heteronormative households, women do more of the domestic work. And a part of that is shopping and cleaning and and choices that carry on environmental weight as well. Yes. And as being environmentally friendly becomes increasingly
1: important to consumers, companies have adapted to that, offering options like reusable pads or menstrual cups. It's easier to find eco-friendly cosmetics. And I have a couple of friends that that's very important to them when they're choosing their cosmetics. And eco-friendly branding is being targeted largely towards women. Uh, This is what we talked about in our It Ain't Easy Being Green episode, how men don't always do their part because they're afraid of being perceived as effeminate or gay. Other research has found that misogyny plays a role in climate change denial, and that men in general are more likely to listen to arguments about the environment that didn't include, quote, feminine attributes, like caring. Yeah, I want,
2: like caring. I wonder if this also includes like, are these same people on the same line as the flat earthers? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> just seems like it would go hand in hand with climate change deniers.
1: That article was interesting just to hear scientists kind of break down how they have to talk to men about it. But according to the pretty short blurb, but I remember they were saying if you're talking to Group of men, it's better to not include anything about like responsibility or caring and much more science based.
2: Right now, this is the impact. Um. (laughs) Teaching them the language of, like, well, actually, yeah, (laughs) I went to a science course. That said, yes, yes. (laughs)
1: Well, it gets worse, Samantha, because oh, some yeah. some research suggests there's a relationship between gender inequality and high levels of environmental degradation. Other studies have found that governments with more women in them are more likely to enact environmental policies and that strengthening or allowing for women's ownership of land increases soil management, tree planting, and other sustainable efforts. Links have also been found between gender-based violence and the environment when it comes to things like control of uh, scarce resources, or just land, and child marriages in exchange for these resources and one less mouth to feed, for example, or women being coerced into sex in exchange for scarce resources. These studies have driven home the importance of the environment when it comes to creating safe public spaces for
2: women. And all these together create what experts called an eco-gender gap that places that responsibility of sustainability on women. Recent research into this suggests that in general, women are more future-focused than men, and they also typically display higher levels of altruism, empathy, caring, and socialization towards being responsible, all of which influences thoughts and feelings towards our environment and taking care of it.
1: Yes, and obviously, you know, this research is broad strokes and pretty binary. But this, I mean, that's what it found in general is that, and we've talked, we talked about that in the Mugari Mutamatai episode Mm of being like thinking about future generations and that Mm -hmm. being important to women involved in environmentalism, which does mean thinking outside of yourself. and something (laughs) that, creating something you might not necessarily get to enjoy or be around for. Right. But uh, let's not forget at the end of the day, as important as these individual choices are and having these conversations are, we need to be pressuring companies and governments to change. It is not our responsibility alone to protect the environment when especially big companies are the ones that are having the greatest impact. So definitely these individual choices taking care of the environment, fantastic. But it's one of those instances where companies especially have largely been like, it's on you, you need right. to recycle this bottle and then... <laughs>
2: right. Well, Also, when we talk about, you know, holding our representatives and people responsible mm-hmm. in these decisions that we get with all these big contracts, especially when it comes to land ownership and what they're doing on these lands and what they're doing to our resources and how they are really damaging a lot of things for our present time Mm -hmm. as well as for the future. And that, again, with capitalism, the whole basis of does this make us money versus does this hurt the world, it does seem to combat with one another and people are picking sides. And we have to be careful and watch to see who, who picks what side.
1: Yes. Yes, yes, yes. We did want to highlight some women doing amazing work for the environment or who have done amazing work for the environment. But first, we're going to pause for a quick break for a word from our sponsor.
0: Can I rant for a sec? Please. Please.
1: Brilliantly Boring Since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Incorporated. PNC Bank, a national association, member FDIC. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. And we're back with a fun disclaimer. Oh, yay. Yes. Uh, <laughs> so we're just doing short bios on these women that could be expounded into whole episodes. And as always, if you're interested in that listeners, please let us know. That being said, we're highlighting their environmental achievements, but their records aren't perfect. You know, no one's is, and we don't agree with every stance they've taken. And some of the things we could unpack, and I'm specifically thinking of um non-GMO movement. Mm -hmm. would be really interesting. I think it's too complex for what we're doing right now. Mm -hmm. But just to put that
2: out there. Right, right. So let's talk about Vandana Shiva. From a young age, Vandana Shiva was raised to care about her environment and she funneled that passion into her studies. So she earned a PhD in philosophy and physics. Wow, those are two Mm -hmm. very broad subjects. And went to study environmental policies among... Other things. And her areas of specialty included agricultural biodiversity, food technology, and the intersection of human rights, which Yeah, they go hand in hand, honestly. In 1991, she launched a movement called Nadanya to, quote, protect diversity and integrity of living resources, especially native seed, the promotion of organic farming and fair trade. A part of this has been providing resources and education to people throughout India. Shiva has also written a lot about the link between environmental issues and women's rights, including a paper called Most Farmers in India Are Women, and she has helped and supported grassroots organizations and indigenous people around the world.
1: Yeah, and I thought especially in light of the farmers protests in India, right. that's really interesting. And she's also right about not even most farmers in India are women. She's also been pretty vocal about how she thinks most farmers in the world are women. Right. Um, in terms of like if, you're, if you take away the kind of capitalism aspect, who is doing the growing and making sure the nourishment of people... Of families. Um,
2: right. I mean, that could go hand in hand with the old idea of the hunter and the gatherer and mm-hmm. what was given to whom. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, next, let's talk about the ocean. Ocean. Yes. And the quote, sturgeon in general or her deepness, the quote, living legend. <laughs> I yes. love all of that. Yeah. Uh, Sylvia Earle. Earl earned her PhD in the study of algae in 1966. She spent a lot of time underwater. In 1986, she tied the record for a solo deep dive, the first woman to accomplish that feat. And uh, she's logged over 7,000 hours underwater. On top of that, she founded a business dedicated to improving tech around underseas robotics and piloting called Deep Ocean Engineering. In 1998, she received Time Magazine's first ever Hero for the Planet designation. And in 2014, she was named the United Nations Champion of the Earth. She's won a bunch of awards. Those are two that stood out. Um, She was the first woman to serve as the Chief Scientist for the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Association, or NOAA. And she was the chair of Google Earth Advisory Council for the Ocean. As an expert on oil spills, she's provided counsel on some of the most high-profile cases of that. She's also been instrumental in oceanic and marine preservation. Most recently, she has worked as the president and chairwoman of Mission Blue, where she has been developing a biodiverse network of protected marine areas called Hope Spots. Oh, It's really cool. Like there's pictures of it, like coral and stuff. Um, Her story is really cool. And we could have, yeah, definitely a whole episode's worth there. But I recommend checking
2: her out for sure. I'm guessing she's kind of like one of those that people are like, see, I want to be that. When they're talking about marine biologists. Yes. Because she seems to live that life. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So let's talk about Rosalie Edge. Rosalie Edge grew up wealthy in New York City and as a young woman was a fierce suffragist. With the passage of the 19th Amendment, she set her sights on gender injustices taking place at the National Audubon Society, a society for birds if you're unclear edge managed to oust the corrupt directors of the organization and this was a big deal she'd become fed up with the mainstream male-dominated environmentalism influenced by timber corporations and trophy hunters and ranchers and pesticide developers and things like that and yeah they would be the big bad of the audubon (laughs) society i would think who Mm -hmm. knows her work really changed the landscape of environmentalism in this country she created the emergency conservation committee which she used to preserve eight Thousand acres of sugar pines in Yosemite, thank you, and made way for the founding of two national parks Olympic National Parks and Kings Canyon. She stepped in after the Audubon Society declined to back a hawk sanctuary that she was pushing for, using her own funds to create it herself, Hawk Mountain Sanctuary, the first preserve for the birds of prey in the world. And she ran the sanctuary for the rest of her life and changed who an activist looked like and what they could do. She spoke out about the dangers of DDT 14 years before Rachel Carson's Silent Spring. A 1948 magazine called her the most honest, unselfish, indomitable hellcat in the history of Conservation. Yeah. I want that title. I want to be the indomitable hellcat. That's an awesome title. Right?
1: So she, with this Audubon Society, she heard that like, among other things, they were allowing people to hunt and trap birds. Yeah. On this. And she showed up and used the things she learned being a suffragist and like asked these really tough questions and then managed to get her hands on the mailing list of all the (laughs) members and sent out these flyers like, you know what they're yeah. doing up there?
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. If there was a movie <laughs> yeah. based on this, they would be the big bad and she would be the superhero. For Yes, sure. yes. I love it. I love it so much. Uh, we do have a couple
1: more women we want to talk about. But first, we have one more quick break for word from our sponsor.
0: Snag a job is where America goes to hire
1: And we're back with Marina Silva, who was born on a rubber plantation in the Amazon in Brazil. She was illiterate until the age of 16, but then she went on to get a history degree. This was after she had a pretty severe bout, a couple of severe bouts of illness and a lot of tragedy in her family. In the in the 1980s, she helped found Brazil's independent trade union movement and participated in peaceful demonstrations with other forest dwellers against deforestation, not only for the harm it did the environment, but also to indigenous communities that lived in those forests. She became the country's youngest senator after her election in 1994. From 2003 to 2008, she acted as Brazil's environmental minister and ran for president a handful of times, once as a representative of the Green Party. Uh, and she she didn't win, but she got close. Like, she was in the top three. She was and is very active in anti-deforestation efforts and in preserving the Amazon. As of now, she is the acting spokesperson and leader of the Sustainability Party. For her work with the environment, she has been nominated and won several awards, including the United Nations Environmental Program, naming her one of the champions of the earth. The topic of deforestation in Brazil is a hot topic to this day. Um, In 2019, those were those devastating fires in the Amazon. Mm -hmm. And Silva continues to speak out against... Government policies and actions that are bad for the environment, and as we said at the top, with the President Biden's climate summit happening right now, I got a news item right before I came in about her talking right. about this and about what the Brazilian government has been doing or not doing in right. terms of the environment.
2: All right. So Peggy Shepard, who has been active in environmental justice since the 1980s, uh, as part of this, she co-founded and serves as the executive director for We Act. ...for Environmental Justice, a nonprofit based in New York. Uh, She started out as a journalist writing for Black Enterprise Magazine and writing speeches for politicians. And Shepard was very involved in politics, particularly involving the intersection of environmental issues and communities of people of color. She was once arrested for protesting the leakage of a sewage system in a nearby river. And just last year... In 2020, she was appointed to New York's Environmental Justice Advisory Board. And in 2021, she was appointed to the White House Environmental Justice Advisory Council. And not only that, she also acts as a trustee for the Environmental Defense Fund and holds a position on the Executive Committee of the National Black Environmental Justice Network.
1: Yes, yes. She's doing a lot. I know, everyone on here. I'm telling you, I think <laughs> we can do a whole episodes on everybody on here. They're all doing amazing stuff. Let's finish out this list with Joanne Joanne Tall. She's a member of the Oglala Lakota in South Dakota. And beginning in the 70s, she became really active in preserving the land there. She protested uranium mining in the area and the potential of nuclear testing in the Black Hills. For her work, she has won awards and recognition, and she went on to co-found a think tank focused on public health and land issues called Native Resource Coalition. Over the years, she has continued to be outspoken about environmental issues and fight for environmental justice, especially for her Indigenous community. So these are some amazing women that show that, yes, women have been and are doing this work around environmentalism and also uh, these intersections of that. Because I do think that when it comes to sort of the corporate mainstream green earth packaging, you can forget all of the things that the environment touches and all the intersections there. And so I love, I'm so inspired by what uh, these women are doing.
2: Right. And uh, yeah, and just to be able to celebrate Mm -hmm. at the same time, I'm sure they're exhausted.
1: (laughs) (laughs) The work never ends, that's for sure. Ever. Ever. Well, listeners, if there's anyone we missed or uh, if you would like us to expand any of these bios out into a full episode, let us know. Yeah. You can email us at momstuff at iheartmedia.com. You can find us on Instagram at Stuff I've Never Told You or on Twitter at momstuffpodcast. Podcast. Thanks, as always, to our super producer, Christina. Thank you, Christina. And thanks to you for listening. Stuff I've Never Told You is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes
2: some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise—all things you want your bank to be. You don't want
1: your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for '80s hair bands, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money, so you can be happily fulfilled with your life.
2: PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since
1: 1865. Brilliantly boring since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Incorporated.
2: PNC Bank, a national association.